Ready, Nick? Let's do it. All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors live in the Wilson studio. I'm your host, Alex DeBoard. Alongside me, as always, Nick Wilson, coming to you and bringing the fun. Tonight, we've got a great episode set for you. The man, the myth, the legend, the guy that's put two 200-inch deer on camera for our good buddy, Greg Blessinger. Y'all pull up a chair and sit a while. He's going to bring a lot of fun. I wonder how red my face is right now. Pretty red, buddy. Pretty red. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know uh, we, for those that don't know in podcast land, we just had to reshoot that again. But if you hear my voice kind of cracking tonight, I apologize. I've been down with a cold. We've had to reschedule a couple of episodes, and Nick's probably going to do most of the talking tonight. I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to pick up my slack. I'm sure it goes. But like I said on the uh, unrecorded portion of this show that we just did tonight we're joined by a gentleman that when we first got his hunting partner on greg glessinger i knew there had to be a a a passion driven individual on the other side of the camera that's putting it out with the footage that he's been able to lay down with what he's been able to put forth just like all the other guys over at jury it's been a pleasure to watch and i know tonight he's going to give us all the insider information he's probably got a couple of secrets he's going to give us on mr glessinger i hope so anyway because uh greg's a greg's been a faithful listener of the show so yes he has he always comments on everything and what a um what a great dude to be around, you know. Just I'd love to go sit around a campfire with him. Yeah, and the the conversations that I've had with him offline and off air, I've spent several hours on the phone with Greg before, and he's always got great things to say about this gentleman. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to talk about it outdoors, Mr. Casey Morgan. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here. For the second time anyway, we get to we get to <laughs> yes, get the sir. jitters out of the way. So <laughs> Casey, um, you know, right off the rip. Like I said, the, the footage and stuff that you've been able to lay out and what you continue to do as a cameraman and I'm sure as a producer of the actual shows that you put together is is unmatched quality. You know, you're able to keep your composure in situations that I know are a high intensity. You've got to have the utmost pressure on you. And I know on December 12th, Greg told me you left the camera battery sitting in the uh, in the truck, had to go get it. He told me that that morning. So right off the rip, I'll throw that one out there. That's uh that was an unfortunate circumstance, no doubt. Uh, and that was, man, I, I think I set the land speed record from blind to cabin to back to blind that morning. But yeah, you, you, it's never without mistakes. And I, for sure. And I think that's the same way that podcasting goes for us. I mean, in anything we do, you know, the hunting side of things, it makes you very humble because just like I was getting ready to throw a jab at you for forgetting a battery, I forget to hit the record button on here. So I'm sure you've had those moments as well. Knock on wood, I've never double punched or not hit the record button. Uh, but that's we talk about it so much. I think that's part of the reason why. You know, it's every cameraman's nightmare. I couldn't imagine having uh, having some of the deer that you've had in front of you and those moments of pressure that are on you to capture it and I guess it's just like making the shot. We started filming this year for really the first time, and it was a, a way of kind of training your mind, just like when you're training your, yourself to shoot that bow and you go through your progressions and your steps. As a camera guy, you probably do the same thing, and I can't wait to hear how you you know compose yourself in those moments. Yeah, there's definitely uh, 
level of nervousness at all times, you know, when you get a deer of that magnitude in front of you, whether you're behind the bow or behind the camera, it's just, uh, it helps in my opinion, if you're a hunter first, you know, and, and you've been through some of those things before, uh, and, and all of those things go into it and you can just kind of sit back. And for me now I, it's become a lot more enjoyable just kind of sitting back and watching it through the lens. But there was a time when I was more of a rookie that it was, it was tough. I believe, I believe he's our second camera guy on here. Yeah. Jordan Summon, I believe was our first camera guy that came on and we sure. probably asked him maybe different questions. We may run this in a different path, but talking to kind of spinning off what Alex said, do you train yourself on the off season? Do you go sit in a tree and work on setting up that camera gear and hitting those buttons and filming stuff? Well, I'll tell you this. So I'm not an overly artistic human being. I mean, I've previously to, to the, what I do now, I was an outfitter um, and obviously grew up hunting and then became an outfitter. I moved out to East central Ohio and outfitted out there, um, managed several properties now work for Craig managing his properties. And so I'm a more of a grunt type human being for starters. So I don't have a great eye for the lens. I don't have a, have any you know super artistic abilities to look through it and be like man this looks great or set up this shot so you know a lot of what i do is truly watching what other people are doing and studying you know what looks good in from a a, from a cinema standpoint like i love looking at movies that have been put out and saying man that's a really cool shot you know we we should try to duplicate that because i'm not going to sit here and say that i come up with these innovative ideas for camera angles and shots and anything that's just not the case i i do most of my learning from watching what everyone else is doing and then trying to trying to rob things pick and choose steal things here and there and 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 just learn and, and, and go about it that way and that's i get that's pretty cool it's, to hear it's funny he says that because now that we started filming if i'm watching somebody hunt on youtube or something i try to pick up what they're doing to try to get a tip but also i can see like a lot of times when they stop the clip and they're adding that clip or they cut it short. A lot of times you see more of that stuff now before it, it, you didn't see that stuff. You take those breaks. You notice the, yeah. the when it goes especially from transitions. When especially when you're editing. Yep. So you see that stuff that falls in there. And I, I guess that's an interesting point that, that we want to go back to, as we always do, and we generally like to start every show with taking it all the way back to the beginning for you, Casey. You know, where did you grow up? Where did you start in, in your hunting as a, as a youth and who got you into it? Yeah. I mean, I, I started off in a, a little town called Iola, Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, North central, I'd say um, town of about 1100 people. And uh, my dad was first to get, a, get me into hunting from, you know, just starting with a BB gun, pretty much similar to the way everyone else grows up. And then as I got more into deer hunting, so did he, he wasn't a huge deer hunter. He'd gone, but he started to get more into it as I grew up. And then, I had, uh, was fortunate enough to almost have two sets of parents. When my parents worked, uh, I had a babysitter from the time I was basically born and they owned a dairy farm and, uh, her husband was Tom Opperman and, and he was huge into deer hunting and, and so was his son, stepson. And so I started hunting kind of between with my dad and over there and, uh, the dairy farm that he lived on was 580 acres and of some of the best hunting that you can find in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, I'm not lying. It's still producing giant bucks. I wish I was in that cabin 
over the last 20 years to do a pan around because the deer that are hanging in there rival any deer across the United States, no questions asked. Um, so I was very fortunate to kind of, when I was 15, 16, get involved with hunting on that area. Um, and then from there, I went off to college. Um, and, and after college had gone through, I, I started getting into tracking deer with dogs. Um, and that, led to meeting a lot of different people and eventually i got my first job um, managing property uh, and that led to being an outfitter i, I was in east ohio uh, east central ohio outfitting and then uh, while i was doing that i was doing a seminar on uh, recovering wounded game by use of tracking dogs and actually greg and greg's son were at that seminar and after the seminar he grabbed me and says hey you know he asked me what i did for a living and talked to me about the dogs and all that stuff and and that's how I met Greg, plain and simple, was at a, doing a seminar on recovering wounded deer. That's pretty pretty uh, interesting story how it came full circle for you to start a, as a uh, young guy hunting. You learned how to hunt, learned how to track game, and then it came all the way back around. You're teaching people, and you land, land at the feet of, uh, of Mr. Greg Glessinger. So that's definitely uh, interesting yeah. to hear. Actually, where I'm sitting right now, this is pretty cool. So the reason why I have the job that I have right now, and I'm not trying to be sentimental about this or anything, but a picture of him hanging right on this wall right here. And this is my first serious tracking dog. His name is Boomer. He's a bloodhound. Um, and that's the reason right there why, honestly, why I have. He was the niche that got me into the outdoor world, basically. So I thought it was pretty cool that he's hanging in there while we're doing this podcast. How cool. What, what what did you say his name was, Casey? Boomer. 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 Yep. So what made you want to come from? I guess Greg. I guess Greg. I guess it was Greg. But what 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 made you want to go from Wisconsin to Iowa? Um, well, here's what happened. So Wisconsin is a very very big deer hunting state. There's a ton of hunters up here. Um, it's literally. Iola, Wisconsin, when you come into where I first grew up, there's a big sign as you pull into town. It says Iola, Wisconsin, the bow hunting capital of the world. And that's what oh, it wow. says. And it's a self, self-proclaimed self bow hunting capital of the world. It's not really. <laughs> but, but I mean, everybody there is, is really into it. So when I was living there, I was always searching to get out of state to kind of avoid some of the masses and the pressure. Um, and I ended up meeting a guy by the name of Tim Woods. You may have heard of him. Um, he's a, right now he's a real estate agent. He used to, um, actually be a jury guy. I think him and Ben rising won dream season 11 or something way back. Um, and he and I kind of got into the tracking thing at the same time, but he lived in Ohio. So I would go and hunt with him and he would come to Wisconsin and hunt with me. And, and my first out of state hunting experience was really in Ohio and, and, and the deer out there are second to none as well. What a great area that he's in. And, uh, so when I started hunting that way, I knew, like, I figured out how good Ohio was. And then from there, you just hear rumors of Southern Iowa. And if everyone is sitting there telling you that Southern Iowa is better than where I was going in East Central Ohio, you, you got to go check it out. And the first time I did, I happened to be with Greg. And, and man, it did not disappoint. And that's why, that's why I reside there today. You get those, uh, you don't have to worry about those preference points now that you're in Iowa. That's right. You uh, definitely makes things easier on you. 
I heard Don Higgins recently talk about uh, Wisconsin hunters and the tradition that lives with them, and he said he, he feels like there's more deer stands in the state of Wisconsin than there is in every other state combined because there's such a tradition of hunting in that state. It is, it is, and they are proud of it. And as far as I'm concerned, it has gone nowhere, meaning it's not it's not lessening, it's not petering off. There's There's just as many hunters – um, up there celebrating the opening weekend of gun season as there ever has ever been. And, and I know, you know, looking at the harvest numbers, um, season wide and all that stuff, everyone's concerned about them declining, but I'm here to tell you, I usually go up there for the opening weekend of the gun season. It's been a while since I sat, but I usually go up there like it's a holiday just to see old friends and, and hang out. And, and that tradition's not going anywhere for a very long time. And it's interesting to hear you say that because we talk about this a lot on the show when it comes to the camp atmosphere and the camaraderie that deer hunting brings with it, do you feel like that that's a losing or a lost thing that's going on in our industry? I guess it depends where you're at and, and, and kind of uh, uh, what, where you're at as far as a deer hunter. Now, like, I don't think it's going anywhere like I said, in the state of Wisconsin, I think that, um, I think that it's definitely not as in dire hurt as people think it is. I hear a lot of negativity now about how hunting's going away. These harvest numbers are down and all this. And, and, and to some degree, I'm sure that's true, but everything I've experienced from the jury outdoor team, um, to my hometown friends that I grew up with, the people I've met along the way, um, they're still flying the flag. They're still getting together with friends. They're still still telling hunting stories. Um, and I see young people also getting involved with it and, and being excited about it, excited about it. So um, everyone's saying that it's going away, but from my perspective, uh, it seems to be still on the move and going the right direction. And I think the hunting side of it, we can agree with is, is still, you know, pretty, pretty level based it's not dropping down in most of the country in our area unfortunately there's less land there's less hunting clubs that we can go to in north georgia i mean we're in the when i was growing up i had a hunting club that was 20 minutes from the house we were there every single weekend during deer season i mean that was where we lived and and now all the hunting clubs around home have dried up they've sold they're in subdivisions now or whatever it may be and we talked to a lot of people about it and to hear that Wisconsin is one of those states, because you're really the first one that said that to us, that keeps that deer hunting tradition alive of camping and going out for opening weekend. I, I mean, that sparks my curiosity even more to get to the state of Wisconsin. Go just I want to go to camp. I, I could care less about the hunting side of it. I like to go and camp with folks. Yeah, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't be disappointed with what goes on up there. In fact, uh, you know, it used to be that a lot of guys would literally they the hunting camps on Friday uh, afternoon, evening at night, celebrate, kind of go out. And then a lot of people didn't even go hunting on opening morning. <laughs> they would just drive down to the local coffee shop and watch uh, all the bucks come in to get registered when uh, you had to bring your deer in to register. Now it's uh, you know done by your phone or, or online. But uh, that used to be part of the tradition and anyone that didn't want to hunt kind of sat there and just oohed and awed over the big deer coming in. So, and I, and I still think there's a lot of that. Um, a lot of the local bars, restaurants, uh, gas stations, all that stuff are running buck pools up there. And, uh, and that's creating that, 
you know, congregation of, of hunters and deer to come together and kind of show each other off. So people can sit there and see what everyone's having, you know, the successes and hear the failures, I guess. That's one thing about the uh, Midwest, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois. You, there's no shortage of pubs in those little towns that you could go and see all the deer stories. <laughs> That's right. And they all got their own buck pool and they're all trying to get as many, they're trying to boost the clientele as best they can. Cause there's probably only 30, 40 people in the town to pick from. <laughs> and let, let me ask this. So, uh, Casey, you guys, do you guys take off? Do they let the kids take off school up there to hunt? I'll ask Valerie. Did they give the kids off school to hunt? And where you were, they did it. They did where I was from. They gave us Friday off. Some schools do. Some schools don't. My, yeah, my fiance is a teacher, and she uh, teaches down here in southern Wisconsin. And she says they don't give them off, which is a tragedy. We better talk that over with. Well, the reason I ask that is, is we're from the south, and uh, you know that from Georgia, they don't give us time off down here but a lot of states once we started going to the midwest hunting they're like yeah the kids get off school it's like a sea of orange we're like what like i thought we were the deer hunters in the south but the further you get north the more it's like a tradition for them well there's there's rednecks everywhere (laughs) that's that's exactly right (laughs) there's rednecks in every state don't matter and and that was one thing we talked about the traditions of, of hunting with a gentleman we had on last last episode, um, R.P. Scritchfield, was from Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is so deeply rooted in that deer hunting culture that it if you think it's dead, talk to a guy from PA. And now talk to a guy from Wisconsin. It ain't dead. It's, it's alive and well. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that about PA. And I experienced it to a point when I worked in Ohio as an outfitter. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what – I'll, I'll say this I, with tongue in cheek, but I got sick of seeing Pennsylvania license plates coming into Ohio. <laughs> Obviously, these guys are big hunters because there's plenty of them coming west. Where's Rick Malik at when you need him? <laughs> exactly. Oh. He's number number one, number one on my list. If I see his plate, I'm heading him off. <laughs> well, he, him and uh, him and Dave had a, a heck of a year um, in in Iowa. I saw that he had he had sent me some pictures, kind of b- before it got dropped out, and I was boy, I was excited for those guys. Yeah, they they always seem to find a way to get it done. That's for sure. And I think that goes with everyone that's on the jury team and. Like you said, you guys have, have spent so much opportunity to showcase camaraderie and brotherhood through all the shows that you've done, whether it was 13, whether it's uh, Dream Season, whether it's Critical Mass, whether it's anything on DOD TV, y'all continually showcase the, the partnerships. It's not just about the guy in front of the the camera it's the camera guy it's the the producers it's everyone that's involved in it and that's one thing that that mark and terry have done an amazing job through the years is it's a team effort and they don't single anyone out to try to make them a star they're the star themselves, and it's a team effort that's right the the deer are the stars really you know and the the thing that i think they do a great job of is there's no shortage of thank yous um, there's no shortage of congrats to everyone involved, all of that stuff. You know, you see Mark and Terry um, giving tons of props to to Wade and, and Perry and Forrest, you know, their guys that are sitting in their corner. Um, and, and I feel the same way between Greg and myself. And I think that, you know, that's a big deal because a lot of that stuff gets lost in the wash. The, the lens is there, you're filming 
and, and it's real easy to pick up the guy in front of it, you know, but um, I think all those guys do a great job. I think, you know, the guys that don't have, that are just, you know, partners that take off time from work and, and, and get out there and, and film each other. I think they do a great job. It's, it's like when you think about and you look across the board from the jury staff and you see someone hasn't killed in a while, you get that feeling like it's going to happen soon because he's obviously on a big one that he just can't quite catch up with because he hasn't made it happen yet. I get that feeling with Steve Franz a lot. Like when Steve doesn't kill ever, it's like next thing you know, there's like 216 hits the wall, you know? Yeah, and, and Steve's a guy that, that's from down here in, in the south. Um, and watching right. him over in Alabama, I told Rick, I said, hey, I got to I gotta get in Steve's ear sometime. I want to get him on for a show and, and do one with him because he's, he's right next door. He grew up hunting like we did. And what you said just a bit ago, there's rednecks all over. That's what's kind of cool that deer hunting, it doesn't matter where you're from, what part of the country you live in, you find a common interest in it. One way or the other, we're going to be doing something the same way. That's right. No doubt. No doubt. I just think it's super interesting. I've never done um, any hunting south of, I guess I would say, Kansas. Um, but I, I hear so much about it. I'd love, I mean, I tell Greg all the time, my dream is to hunt Terra Wildlife someday. You know, I'd lo love to get down there and, and do that. Just to, how, how can you? compete with an island or a peninsula of deer that's like every deer hunter's dream i think like this is that was all there is here is deer on this place you know and it's surrounded by water i think that'd be cool and and i think that guys that are from different areas you know you guys are from the south you know you're probably curious about oh, man what's going on up in wisconsin how is the hunting how, what does it look like what's the terrain like is it beautiful you know every, each place is that you go is beautiful in its own way i i go places that our flat as a pancake, I think it's gorgeous because I grew up where you couldn't see 30 feet because there's a tree there. That's right. So like, you know, and other people come up north, you know, to where I'm from and they're like, they think that's beautiful. So I guess it's just, it's all about the, the conversations you can have by just experiencing people in different areas. I think it's totally interesting. Now, what year did you actually join uh, as far as a filming job with Drury? I guess that would be 2016 would be my first year filming with Drury. Yeah. Yep. That would have been, yeah, that was my first year for sure. First impression when you met Mark and Terry. So it's interesting. You say that where I grew up, we have a sports shop. It's called JR sports shop. It's the only like archery place in town. And, uh, he would get the Drury DVDs. And he would put them on a rental. He would actually rent out hunting videos. That's how <laughs> there's actually a market for rental hunting videos at this time, which is cool. Um, but, and we would ride our bikes down to the sports shop and, and rent the videos as soon as they would hit the shelves and watch them. So uh, my first impression was, holy smoke, you know, this is amazing. You're, you're meeting someone that you watched your entire childhood. Um, and they're very good guys. They take it seriously. Uh, I don't think you're going to find two people that are more fanatical about deer hunting than those two guys. And uh, there's just a lot to learn by listening. It's it's nice to sit down at a table because you can take a lot in. And they do it. You guys do an award banquet too at the end of the year, correct? What didn't Rick tell Tip, us? That? 
typically, yeah, we have an award banquet. We have a, a producer of the year award um, that I believe is voted on by the editors um, and a bunch of other stuff. It's usually a pretty good time. Take us, take us into that, Casey. How is it sitting in that tree? I mean, what, where did you get your start filming at? I, my start filming came from just trying to, trying to film myself. I remember the first hunt uh, that I ever filmed in my life. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, her younger brother, uh, uh, wanted to go turkey hunting. And I, I had a camera with a, it had actually a mini DV tape in it. Uh, and, and we went to, to try to film this turkey hunt and we ended up getting it on film. Um, and then tried a bunch after that with a, a ton of failure. And, and when you start filming and you have those failures, it almost seems like it's impossible to actually execute. Um, because it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it is. And then once you start doing it and getting a few and get going with it, then you start rolling and start figuring out the ins and outs. Um, but honestly, it was just a hobby. It was like, Hey, let's try to film this stuff since we've killed a bunch of birds. Let's try to get one on film. We never even thought at that point in time about trying about trying with deer because you're always just like worried about getting to see or kill a deer. You know, you didn't think you were going to see five, six deer in a sit. You thought you were going to see one or two. And if that one came by, like, you just got to do your best to get an arrow in it because none of us had killed more than five, six deer in our lives when we were younger, you know. So, so I guess it's just, it started out as a hobby. And I, I would say I've learned since 2016 to now, I, I, I've learned 110% more than I did prior to this and, and I was mostly just filming myself and it was like I said it was a hobby just kind of going through the whole process of learning by trial and error would you prefer to film turkeys now or deer I would prefer to film I guess I'd prefer to film deer I prefer to hunt deer turkeys are I would okay I'll tell you this I would prefer <laughs> to hunt and film archery deer hunting and then after archery deer comes turkey hunting, and then right after that comes killing deer with a gun. Okay, you know I like to hear a man talk about killing a killing a deer with a gun. Like it, it seems there's you know this bravo mentality in the in the world now that if you're not bow hunting, you're you're nobody. You're not doing it the right way, you know. And we have we have preached it from day one. Any legal means necessary, bow, crossbow, uh, muzzleloader, rifle. If you're hunting, okay, we, we love it. We want to hear the story on it. We want to know how you took the deer, you know, whatever. That's your deer, and it's your story. It doesn't matter how you got there. You got it done. That's right, and and I think, you know, when I was talking about that, I just really love the close quarters of turkey hunting and the close quarters of archery. I think it – it adds a lot of elements to the hunt that you maybe don't get on the other side, but don't get me wrong. I, I, hey, if you gave me a freaking cannon with a ball, I'd load that sucker up and, and kill one if I could, because there's nothing wrong with any means necessary getting the job done whatsoever. If it's legal, go ahead and go ahead and do it. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, hey, the my biggest eight pointer, biggest eight pointer I've ever seen in my life. Obviously, just was able to harvest him. It was with the 350 Legend, and wouldn't I didn't care what I had in my hand when he walked out. I mean, seriously, I would have thrown a grenade at him. Not a problem. <laughs> How do you like that 350 Legend? I really like it. I really like its accuracy. So growing up where I did, it was slug guns only. 
And I remember the first gun, uh, and this is just a pure product of what people hunted with. It was a smooth, a smooth bore Remington 870 slide action with the, you know, I had rifle sights on it because it did have a slug barrel on it. Um, but it was really hard to get that slug to pattern very well out to a hundred yards. I mean, hell, even 75 was right. a little bit of a gamble. And, and now with, you know, the 350 being as accurate and as deadly as it is, I mean, it's, it's just such an irreplaceable tool. We, uh, I've been <clears throat> fortunate enough to go to Iowa and hunt during the shotgun season and get to party hunt with some guys the last probably 10 years. And when I first started going, I had a 20 gauge and they said, oh, you got to get a 20 gauge. It's, it's the one to use. It started with 12 and then I got a 20 gauge. And then, of course, they legalized straight wall cartridges, and I bought a 450 Bushmaster that would absolutely break your arm when you shot it. But I love that 350 Legend, and if anyone out there is doubting that gun's capacity to shoot past 200, 250 yards and be accurate, you're selling yourself short because I dropped a doe this year at, like, 190. And, I mean, it was a direct – I mean, hammered her, dropped her in her tracks. And I absolutely love that gun, and that's the reason I asked. I thought it was a three fifty that you'd used. What you thought about it? What What are you uh, running for cartridge for uh, – what grain bullet were you shooting through your three fifty? One fifty. One fifty. Okay, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was, I was shooting. I have found that uh, as ammunition has become more of a shortage, I've seen that the 180-grain bullets are uh, – are more prevalent wow. for purchase. And, uh, uh, I've had a little tougher time getting the same range out of the 180 that I did the 150, but I was just curious what you were shooting through it. And, and yeah, it's, that's the same, same grain bullet that I, that I shoot. I will use it in Georgia, even though it's my gun of choice up North, I'm going to use it in Georgia to take my son because of the, the recoil. There is absolutely, I've got a 223, the, a bold action Ruger, same platform. It's an American. Uh, I've got the American Go Wild edition, and it the recoil is less than that two two three. I mean, it's just such a pleasurable gun to shoot. And I put my can. I'm going to put my can on it. I'm waiting on an adapter because we can hunt with them here. So I'm going to put it on there and see what it sounds like and see what it does. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm waiting on the same thing here. I had went through the process. Uh, to go through the the uh, suppressor process and got that i'm just waiting for it to come in i've actually got um my i could see it sitting right here leaning in my gun safe and I'm, it's a uh, silencer ready so or suppressor ready so i'd love to hear what it sounds as well but yeah you're 100 right it's zero recoil be, recoil be a great gun for a young kid uh, um, but I, I, there's not another gun for the iowa shotgun season or iowa gun season i should say that i'm going to grab I, I wouldn't go to anything else yeah, I agree 100%. It's the it's the gun of choice, and there's a lot of people swapping to it. You couldn't find a box of 350 Legend ammo up there this year. I know. It was, it was rough, especially under 180 grains. I did come across a few, you know, 180 grain rounds, which I did. I sighted Greg's gun in with a 180 grain bullet just because I'm like, this is the only thing you're going to be getting a hold of. Those are the, the golden projectiles, as they're called now. That's what they're going to be changing bullets to. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you ever get in a, a situation now that you've got my number, you can't find those one fifties, holler at you boys down here in Georgia because they ain't nobody shooting three fifty leads and I got you. Oh, I appreciate that. I'll remember <laughs> that. I'm glad you sent me that number in the message then. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Well, uh I wanna go I, I thought about this earlier. I want to go right into it and I want you to tell me what it's like as a cameraman to be sitting behind 
the lens and have the opportunity to film a 200-inch deer. Not see the harvest, but I want to know what it came into your mind. Because you grew up a deer hunter. I mean, you know what it takes to get to that point. You know it's not an everyday occurrence. What was that like for you? The thing that helped me a lot, well, well, there's two things. The first thing that helped me a lot is the amount of time I spent in Iowa hunting in that area um, with Greg prior to those hunts. And if you've never hunted in Southern Iowa in some of these good areas, the first time you do, it is going to shock you. Uh, and the magnitude of the deer in, in the area, it's going to, it's going to change you for, it's going to take you a minute to, to be like, okay, this is what we're doing now. Like this is what we're used to now, as opposed to where we grew up, you know, you see a hundred inch deer, you're like, the bow is strings tight, That's right. <laughs> you know, now you're like, okay, those deer are a little more prevalent, I'll say in that area. So spending the time down there leading up to that um, definitely helped. The other thing is, you know, managing the land, you know, I'm looking at thousands and thousands of trail cam pictures a day and knowing that that deer is there and having trail camera pictures of them, it, it'll give you a little bit, it helps you because you're like, okay, this is what the deer looks like. This is what we're looking for. Um, but I will say that, I will say that there's no way to totally prepare yourself for a 239 inch deer. Um, to step out. And, um, I will say this, I filmed, uh, three deer of Greg's that he killed that were over 200 and then one that was 196. So like the first 200 that he killed was major league. And that deer, we hunted that deer for days and days and days and saw him and saw him and couldn't get him killed and couldn't get him shot. And, and after that deer, that taught us so much, um, about that chasing that caliber of buck. Um, it really prepared myself and I think it prepared Greg. I don't think he would deny at all that the first time he laid eyes on the first 200 that he harvested, he was not mentally prepared for what that was going to look like. And, and that was both of us. Um, but that deer taught us both so much and then kind of springboarded us into the next few years. And, and now, I mean, you can't argue the man is a deadly cat when when he gets one in range it's usually it's usually pretty lights out yeah and i think that we as deer hunters growing up like you did you made an interesting point there a 100 inch deer to us growing up oh man we're we're pulling back we're ready to shoot i mean there ain't no way in the world i was 22 years old before i killed a deer that was anywhere close to 100 inches and i'd hunted since i was 12 and Nick, same right. way. Nick hunted for years before he got a big one down. Then we went to the Midwest. And then we were seeing, okay, they do exist. There is a possibility that I can kill a 150, a 160, a 170. You know, they're here. And I yeah. found them. Now I've just got to put myself in a position to kill them. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, I will say the the Greg's um, – he had major league and they had extra innings. Extra innings was a 239, largest deer ever killed in DOD history. The first time we saw that deer, Greg saw him first. And I, I swear to you, I, I heard the air come out of his lungs when he saw him. And I didn't even have to look around. I, I immediately started looking for the camera. Like, I'm going to pick this up. <laughs> and as he worked across there, I was like, I can't believe I'm witnessing a deer this caliber 
on the hoof a lot. I mean, in the wild. It's just, it, it, it's a spectacle. I mean, I can't sit here and say, I'm not going to be the guy that's like, oh, yeah, you know, you just got to take it, take deep breaths or whatever. That All that deep breath talk and all that, it, that doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> you can breathe all you want, but if you've got something of that caliber in front of you and you're trying to keep it together, you just better hope you've done it enough and your instincts are good enough that you can kind of do it on autopilot because your, your brain's not working real well, you know. Oh, I love do you, it. Do you think the years that, that you went into guiding from Ohio – and then now you're managing his property. Do you think that's been success for both of you guys to be able to get these deer from what you learned over the years? I will say this much. Um, managing significant tracts of land in southern Iowa and what we do now, the stress level for me and, and, and the work level is significantly easier than outfitting in East central Ohio. When you're an outfitter, you have to lease your land. You don't own most of it. And you have to, you have, normally you have a ton of, of land, but it's always like a piece here and a piece here and, and just tracks all over the place. And you're trying to kind of keep track of all this stuff and, and manage it. And then, you know, not get your clients. We need the clients to pass up a certain caliber deer because we need to grow them for next year. They kill too many. Now what happens to the clients that paid in later in the season? You know, all that stuff, it's really rough. I mean, it's a, it's a hard profession to be in and I give anybody that is successful at it and makes it go. I give them all the credit in the world because it is, it's, it's a tough job and it's, it's a hundred percent of your time from the time the season opens to the time the season closes. You don't, you don't talk to anybody like it's you're there and that's all you're doing. And um, to now I gained a lot of experience from being an outfitter. And it's helped me tenfold. It was a great experience. I wouldn't take it back in the world to now where we're able to kind of grow and, and implement food sources and use timber stand improvement and controlled burns to enhance the habitat and really care for the deer on a really high level. And we control totally what goes on within these properties. You know, we're, we're just, of course, a deer goes to the neighbor and gets shot every now and then, and someone dies of EHD or a coyote gets one or they get injured. That stuff is still, you're competing against that. But, but typically, we have the ability that if we allow a deer to get through and get age and get genetic, you know, or get age and get nutrition, um, we are now seeing the great results of, of following through with the program that we've installed. What's, what do you think? Is very key other than, is there anything else other than bedding or food that may keep a 200 and something inch deer on your property? Oh, hundred percent. So whitetails, people think of food in their mind as food plots. And they think about it as if you're in the South, maybe it's feeders or maybe it's a mineral supplement or, or maybe it's, you know, a, some sort of, ana, you know, analogic blocks, stuff like that. Um, truth be told, Deer feed on a million different things. In the north where I grew up, woody browse is the preferred source of nutrition for deer. It's large timber, and that's what they eat in the winter. We get three, four feet of snow. I don't care if you plant eight-foot-tall brassicas. They're hurting by December. So you have to take all that into mind. That's like 
you manage your grasslands so that the native warm season grass can reproduce and come back and, and be, and the, and the forbs can come back so that the deer have all that summer nutrition to continue to grow and get big and, and they can feed basically anywhere. Now you're still going to harvest the majority of your deer over food plots. If that's the style of hunting you choose to move forward with, but timber stand, getting trees on the ground to prevent woody brow or to allow for woody browse later in the year, um, control burns to regenerate the native warm season grasses with glyphosate application prior great way to regenerate your native grass and allow for native forms for the deer to feed on all summer. Um, I mean, we could talk into depth on this literally all night, <laughs> I mean, um, but it's more than a cameraman folks. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. I'm taking notes over here. <laughs> But, but I mean, honestly, you know, water sources, we found one of the greatest things in Southern Iowa is if you can have a moving water source, I'm not talking about like a stagnant pond or water hole and stuff, but if you've got a creek flowing through your property, it's going to dr- dramatically decrease the effects of EHD on your deer. It's just, they have that moving water source to, to choose from and, you know, they just can't be affected as much. So, you know, you, you can bedding and feeding that's that's how we kill deer you know if if you've got a if you locate a target buck and you create a food plot in this area and then you go in and do some timber stand improvement to create bedding thickets um do some hinge cutting to allow the sun to reach the forest floor and create more food in there and, and a little bit thicker habitat for him to bed in or create a native warm season grass area where he can bed and, and kind of feed close to where you're trying to harvest the deer that's that's hunting side now on the other side, you need to grow and new, you know, provide nutrition for this deer year round. He needs to live five, six, seven, eight years to reach his full potential. Greg and I literally just talked about this, you know, how do you monetize a deer? What is a 170 worth from a dollars and cents level? And I sat there and thought about it and I was running some numbers. I was like 25 grand, 30. I don't know. I mean, he's got to be seven, eight, nine years old before he reaches his full potential to get to that size. And by that time, how much time, how much energy, how much, how much have you put into that deer? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting question I was thinking about, Casey. What do you guys do um, once you've taken, let's say it's November 1st, and I don't know the dates that, that Greg killed those deer. He puts those deer down on his farm November 1st. What are you guys doing to the end of the season to help those bigger bucks grow? Are you guys taking out more does? Are you guys taking out cold bucks? We don't really get into that with most folks. So what do you guys do on, on the farm like that to help out? So 100%. And actually, I'll just talk about. So there's different programs that DNR allows in a lot of places. And the number one thing that we do once – Let's just say we've we've harvested the mature deer or the, let's just call them trophy deer, mature deer or whatever you want to do that we have for the season. Uh, sorry, my, my two-month-old babies lighting up in the background. Oh, no, that's fine. Uh, um, but uh, if we've harvested, let's say Greg lays that deer down and yep. that farm isn't going to be hunted for the rest of the year as far as bucks go, um, definitely we approach the does. Um, we just, you do a camera survey through the summer, um, and, in Iowa, fortunately, you know, you can feed during, 
during the summer months in the off season. Uh, we do a camera survey there. We come up with a number of does that need to be taken out. As far as cull bucks go, we don't like, we don't target cull bucks specifically. I, you know, I always like, don't like that word so much that it's, it's a cull. It, we target mature deer no matter what they look like is the, is I guess the way I'd like to put it. Like if he's five and a half, six and a half, and we feel like he's fully mature and he's reached his maximum upside, uh, we will definitely go ahead and harvest that deer trying to just harvest mature deer. And it's hard. I mean, it's not easy to kill a six and a half year old, 135 inch eight point, you know, they're every bit as cagey as a seven and a half year old, 230. You know what I mean? It's just, it seems like, like human beings and not every deer is a professional athlete deer. You know, they may be seven and a half, eight and a half, and they don't reach the score. It's not to take anything away from the deer. It's just, you know, he maxed out. That's just genetically, or for whatever reason, if you lived on a, on a, maybe you lived on somebody else's farm and moved into ours or, or something like that. You know, you just, you don't know. So we don't, we don't target a ton of cull bucks per se. We target mature deer. If they present opportunities while we're hunting, we'll go ahead and take them, but we definitely take it to task on the does. That's, that's one of our biggest projects every year. Is there something that you guys try to, what do you look at? What, what's your does? How many does do you want to take out? I don't know how to really ask that. Like, what are you looking at? What's your statistics on how many deer? We're, you tr- we're trying to get it between, you know, one buck to every three does. That's that's your target. You, you, you may never reach that. Uh, you may be on the other side of it, you know, but that's what we're trying to see when we do a camera survey, and that's what we're shooting for. So when we do an inventory in the summer, let's just say a, for instance, property on a 40 let's say you've got a dozen deer that live on 40 acres. Let's just say it's a great 40. There's a dozen deer that live there. So you got three bucks, you know, you want to kill enough does so that you can triple the amount of bucks and, and keep that in check. It's just, I'm not saying one to three is the magic number. I'm saying that's what we shoot for because we feel like it's feasible for us. And we feel like that's a legitimate goal that we can achieve and it's going to help us out. Let me ask you this. And I don't, it's going to be weird at what if you had 20 does and you had a 200-inch deer? Why would that 200-inch yep. deer not stay on that property with 20 does? Does it- a lot of that a lot of that depends on the age of the deer. So, I'm sure you've heard it 100 times. The older they get, the smaller their core area, correct? Right. So, it, I am not saying to you that a deer can't reach 200 inches at 5 because it can, it can happen. It's not normal or it's not regular, but it can happen. So if you have a five and a half year old, 200 inch deer, their instincts as a younger deer are to travel further. So if they finish up with the doe, they may just turn and take a walk. They may walk 10 feet. If they, if there's another hot doe in the area, you've seen, you know what happens. He's not going to walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, but does come in at such different rates and it, it seems to me like the older a buck is, the less confrontational he is, the less he wants to walk very far. And just, he's just kind of like, he's like us. It's like the older you get, you're just like, all right, I'm not, 
I'm not going to run over there and mess with the 13 two-year-olds that are going to try to shove a tine in my rib cage. I'm just going to kind of <laughs> chill here where I'm good, you know, and just, and just hang out. I've been through it. I know the ups and downs of the rut now. I know, but I will say this, it seems like the bigger, more mature deer are the first to lock down with those every year, you know, and there's a ton of studies out there that say that where they've put different sized racks on high fence deer, and it shows that the does are more susceptible to larger racked white-tailed deer. It's just, it's just a study that's out there. That. It seems like that's the truth. But what you're really saying, like what you're saying is, is if there's a lot of does in that area, it's going to bring all the bucks in versus just one doe. Because those small bucks know they're there. Mid-sized bucks know they're there. They're all coming to your farm. Big guy don't want to play around with them. Yeah. So you want the correct amount of does. You don't want too many and you don't want too few. You want a one to two, one to three ratio for your bucks to does um, because you don't want to create this doe farm that's full of them. And you got 85 year and a half, two year old, three year old deer buzzing through there because big, big mature deer typically now i'm saying typically because you're going to find a seven and a half year old buck that's mean and just like to fight because he's got that personality they all have that they have different personalities you never know what you're going to run into but typically those big bucks big old deer are not going to want to mess with you know a dozen two-year-olds coming in and, and and going crazy and and rutting and and all of that and if you watch let's say you see a field filling up with deer and the more deer that get in there, the more opportunity there is for one to freak out and freak them all out. And if you see the, the big bucks, the larger, more mature deer, the older deer, they're always kind of the last to the party because the earlier you get out there, the field's going to clear, things happen. They don't typically enjoy being a part of this giant deer conglomeration. You know, they're just kind of cagey. They take their time. They get out there right before dark there's less likely that there's predators around and all of those things but more than that they're just they don't like the bother of it is what i've experienced anyway and then that's an opinion it's not like there's some science out there about it but it's just what i've i've seen over the years i'm sitting here just flabbergasted at what i'm hearing because i have i have chased a deer for several several years and he's he's a good one i mean he would be a a great buck from where we are and i've been chasing this deer for a while and I have had early season, I get him on camera. I get him in, you know, he's there, and he's coming to feeders. He's coming to food plots. He's he's naturally there, usually at dark. Might get a daylight picture of him here and there. And then I start getting smaller bucks. I get a two-and-a-half-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, a four-and-a-half-year-old, whatever. And I start getting all these little bucks because I've got a lot of does, and I don't shoot does there with the mentality that, hey – I want to see these deer, you know, I'm bringing in all the bucks. I'm bringing all the bucks. And I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, my God, you idiot. Here you have yeah, let all those. these does sit there. And you brought all these other bucks in. And this big guy is probably leaving. Now, every year he comes back late season. He's there like right now. This is We got a whole other month in our county in Georgia to hunt. And he's back. And he just came back. He's been going all the rut. And so he's just now started coming back. And I, I'm like, I could have probably already got this deer killed. But now that may not be the case. He may not be that. You know, maybe he's got another range that he goes to. He winters somewhere and he comes back to me for food, whatever. But I have let, I haven't shot a doe on this farm 
in, I would say, probably 10 years because I had the sure. mentality, I want to see the year, I want to watch them, but I'm seeing the same old does, and they're like this, coming through the woods, like you said. You know, they know where I'm at. They know my stands. They know the locations. And, I, my boy, I tell you what, I'm kicking myself. I'm only pump my brakes for a minute there because I'm kicking my butt. Casey, if you have a 205-inch deer that you guys are going to hunt early season, do you go in that spot taking does early, or do you not go in there until the time is right? Yeah, we're definitely hunting that deer. We're not going to go in and disturb that area until he's he's dead or he's moved out of the area. Um, I definitely we we try to be very very patient and and very cautious um, with deer. We we try to feed them forward, hunt away from their bedding areas. We try not to mess with them at all, and we're trying to kill. If we can make it happen on our terms, meaning we feed them forward with food plots or or agricultural fields whatever it may be and we can get we can suck them out and kill them the way we want to that's the way we're going to get it done if we can now not every deer cooperates they don't all do they don't all read the script um and sometimes you got to take some evasive action and get in on them and be aggressive and do those things which we will do um but if we're going to try our best to kill them where we want to kill them first and and without pressuring that area and without messing with anything we don't want them to know they're being hunted Slip up a creek bank like you, uh, you and Greg might have might have done. Slip up through a creek and get them killed. Do you think stress causes a deer not to grow antler size? Absolutely. You think so? Absolutely. Yeah. So here, here's the funny thing. So this is this is one theory. Uh, Greg's two thirty nine had the year before. Um, so the year we have his sheds prior to the year that De- Greg harvested him, he got a foot injury. Uh, somewhere throughout the year, he started limping. I had a couple pictures and some videos of him um, limping. And he did not, during the rut, he did not go anywhere. He stayed right there. So one theory is that he kind of sat out the rut from the year prior to us killing him. And we think that possibly that's part of the reason why he was able to put on 50, 60 inches of bone because he didn't, he didn't rut hard. He didn't go anywhere. He was a little bit injured. He kind of sat it out. He was, he kind of just sat in bed and went back to bed and he was just kind of nursing his injury. And then he got really healthy in the late season and we had a nice mild winter for him. Um, and all of those things definitely came into play, but a hundred percent, if a deer is stressed, it's, it put it this way, typically deer that shed their antlers early, if they're wounded or sick or something goes on and those antlers drop off because their testosterone's dropped, they don't have a great rack year the year after they just don't, you know, because they've been stressed out and it'll, it'll affect their rack. You know who he reminds me of when he talks after going through the guide stuff, it just hit me. Nick Munt. Yeah. It's so, like, it's, hey, Nick, Nick hunted with us in Ohio. He was, I remember that he, he's, he's a good guy. Nick, Nick, you know, hearing you tell the story of, you know, camping and and hunting the way that you did and then going into the guiding and then going through, we had Nick on for our 50th episode and it was just, but I got to ask this question now that I, I talk about Nick, how do you field dress a deer and do you field dress deer? I know back home what you probably did, but well, let me ask that. How has it changed the way that you field dress a deer? You mean, you mean just overall gutting the deer or start to finish? No, no, just, just gutting it. Just gutting it. I always say field dressing, but just gutting him out. When you were growing up, did y'all gut them where they fell? 
Oh, yeah, for sure we did. Yes. Yeah, you mean that. Yeah, totally. Don't do a whole lot of that anymore. Uh, we don't. But, you know, there are situations where we do field dress them where they fall. I'll tell you one thing I've got into um, the last four or five years, a lot of for dough harvesting is the gutless method of field dressing. And literally skinning them, quartering them, taking them out right there and uh, and deboning everything. Um, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this where you guys are at or down south a lot, but a lot of areas are having these CWD issues and where a deer has CWD, you can't carry the deer across state line with the bones. That's you right. Bone the whole thing. Um, so with all those, that stuff kind of going on, I've really gotten into, into doing that. I've, I've started to just kind of, you know, skin them, take the meat off, debone them and everything and, and kind of be done with it. So, um, to answer your question, I do a lot of that now, but yeah, I, I definitely don't got a whole lot of deer where we, where we harvest them anymore. I mean, it doesn't to me, I don't think it really bothers the deer. The one thing it will do is bring the predators in and that right. kind of messes with them. You know, I just don't even want a part of it really. If I can keep it away from them and keep the pressure down and keep the stress down, it's, we'll take every step possible to do that. When you, when you gutted them back home, when y'all were doing it all the time, did you, did you split the pelvic bone or did you cut around the, the butthole of it with a nice split the pelvic bone? See, and that's, Although, that's different. Yeah, that, <laughs> The invention of the butt out kind of changed that, right? I mean, you could use that. I never uh, could honestly, get that everyone, thing to work. <laughs> I can't believe everybody says that. Everyone says that. Everyone makes fun of me, too. Like, we do a bunch of doe drives and stuff uh, with all our buddies. And, and the last uh, late season doe up here in northern Wisconsin. And every time I pull that thing out, someone starts picking on me about it. <laughs> and I'm like, this thing works. It works every time. I, I like it. I keep it with me. So whatever. I know it looks kind of awkward, but whatever. No, we, we, I bought one. My dad did. And I think it was the bud out one that only had the, the two prongs <laughs> on it, the short one. And we tried yeah. to use it because we always cut around the butt and we never yeah. split the pelvic bone. We go to Iowa for the first time. And of course, you know how it is up there during the gun season driving deer. There's 30 does that get killed. And, you know, we're going out there and gutting. And these guys are, they're cutting the belly. And then they're taking, then splitting the pelvic bone and ripping them right out. And this year, my dad, for the first time ever, let me cut because I t I took that as a, a a tool. I mean, it was way easier than cutting it out. It got it out cleaner. I don't I don't care what anybody says. It's a better way to do it. And he it let me buy him a saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can get a little zip saw or whatever <laughs> and carry it with you. And yeah, we, that's how that's how I was taught how to do it. That's what my dad taught me how to do it. Split the pelvic bone and 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 everything but i don't know it's the old butt out i can't I, believe you brought that up you're the first person to ever mention it on the show and i love it i wish i had that thing near me i don't think i do but we're jumping back and forth here casey i, I want to ask real quick i don't think you are you're not kin to levi are you no i'm not okay. no unfortunately not no man okay <laughs> maybe some i wish i wish some of those i mean if i if i had that kind of those kind of genetics, you know, maybe I wouldn't be filming. Maybe I'd just be shooting everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know all, I know all y'all are on the Matthews, uh, team now. So, um, just want to ask that real That's quick. True. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. No, unfortunately not. Yeah. What is the biggest, I don't want this to sound like. Just say it. Don't I, be thinking. I, I, I don't it. know. I don't know how to word yeah. it. Like what, like when you and Greg hunt together, What's the hardest thing for you guys to see eye to eye on or 
something like that. What 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 do y'all battle about yeah, the most? Yeah, yeah. I don't want it to I'm not I don't want you to say nothing bad about Greg, of course, and he's gonna listen to this, but <laughs> Oh he, he no, I, there there's two I'll tell you what, the number one thing that comes to mind is on hero picture shots, he likes the an upward angle with a skylet buck, like, you know, kind of laid out like that dramatic so you can see all the tines and all that. And I have a soft spot for two things. One, just a straight-on picture of a deer with a guy sitting behind it like, look at this. Here it is. And then, like, I like kind of an upward angle and a few things. Um, and I also don't mind a back-on-the-tailgate shot either because I think I am just kind of grew up that way. Um, and Greg is definitely more creative as far as the camera, pictures, photo stuff goes. Um, so we, we go back and forth on that, but in the end, we just take both styles of pictures and then, you know, it, it all works itself out. <laughs> I've, I've um, never but, seen Greg on a tailgate shot. So you may have to send me some of those. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah. He needs, he needs to, he needs to have more of those. Um, I, as far as what don't we see eye to eye on, I mean, here's the deal. If you spend too much time with another grown man in your life like you you have a friend where you're just around him too much every once in a while you're gonna be like all right <laughs> that's i'm a- out i need it i need a i need a break <laughs> but but other than hell that's a wife like, too ain't it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt and so you know other than those things i don't think there's a whole lot that i can sit there and, and pick apart i think that's probably why we've been able to be um, as successful as we have, we, we're pretty like-minded, um, and we think about things a lot of the same ways. We're both uh, a little bit anal in our own ways and different things. Um, so uh, it's been a good it's been a good run, and I think that uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really pick on anything. I do say I will say this: he always jacks me up about those pictures, though. He's always constantly <laughs> like, "I hate those pictures. They make the deer look small." I like that. I'm like, "Go kill a bigger deer," you know. It'll look big. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That's great. Well, and I I think that cohesive relationship can go into anything. You know, Nick and I, over the last year, we have spent hours and hours and hours together down here because we, we are here twice a week. We, some nights we're doing, you know, two episodes a night. We've got hours on the phone together during the day, but you, you made a very interesting comment there that you're very like-minded in different ways. You've got your own tendencies that, that flow together and I think if you were exactly the same, it wouldn't work. Just like Nick and I, we're totally different when we, you know, when we approach a situation, but we can come together and it makes it work so much better for each other because we kind of feed off of each other just like you guys do. Yeah, no doubt. You don't, you know, you, you got to be able to be honest and open with your opinions uh, and just because nobody – will get a good idea if they're just taking their own, you know, mindset and their own angle of thinking and everything. Um, it's just two minds are better than one type of mentality. You know, we, we talk constantly about access, entry, what locations, what wins do we want to do this? Why are the deer doing it? We, we discuss it relentlessly. Um, and in the end, uh, we always seem to come up with a better plan than just either one of us would have on our own. Well, Casey, we've uh, we've wound it up here and took up a lot of your time tonight, and I cannot 
imagine the the amount of knowledge that you have in that head that we're going to have to get you back on again. But we're kind of winding up down here at the end, and Nick's got a couple of questions that he always hits everybody with, so I'm going to let him hit him hit you with them real quick. It, it actually kind of went diff- it went in a different direction tonight than I thought it would have. Oh, absolutely. I was and, expecting and, to talk about filming and stuff, and here we are. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, just got schooled on how to yeah, kill a 200-inch yeah. deer that we didn't I mean, even have to ask about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, there's, there's questions we ask on here that we probably didn't even ask Don Higgins about, you know. So yeah. um, I think it was a good episode, Casey, and I, I'm glad you came on. But I always ask, and, and I really don't never, don't never know how to actually ask what I'm trying to ask, I guess, but – do you have any advice that you would give to a listener that might want to look into getting in the outdoors? How about that? Um, as far as let me let me ask you this: Are you talking about like as far as making a career or kind of getting a job or or, or moving in that type of industry situation? Is that no, what you're asking? No, just a brand new listener, brand new listener to the podcast. They're like, you know what? I like this. I, I like what they're what they're bringing. I sure would like a helpful tip that that Casey Morgan does each time he goes out in the woods. And I know that could be a thousand things. Sure, sure, sure. So, like, okay. Um, I need a better way. To I ask would you say that. <laughs> no, I went around the world no, on that I, one. <laughs> I think, I think um, it's it's perspective. So the problem that we have is that everyone is sitting here watching television or YouTube, and they have this idea of what deer hunting or squirrel hunting what whatever hunting you might be doing should look like and i think if you go in with this is supposed to be challenging you are supposed to fail more than you succeed um, and if you go into it and say you know what i'm going in this with an open mind and a clean slate and i'm probably not going to be successful but I, i'm going to learn and, and the more i go the better i'm going to get at it until i'm going to take it to task until darn it, you know what, I'm going to get this done. Whether that be going squirrel hunting and you're going to sit more or walk more or whatever it is, I would just approach it with an open mind like it's probably not always going to go your way. It's not going to go always go your way. It's basically never going to go your way. And that's what is so addictive of this, this you know, hunting, fishing, any of it. it it's, it's fail and fail and fail. But when with all the failures that come into it, uh, the successes are just that much more precious. And I think that's that's one thing I try to keep an open mind about because it gets frustrating hunting day after day after day and not being successful and not having things go your way. You just got to kind of think about it like, hey, it's not meant for this. It's meant to be enjoyed, and then it's meant to be cherished when it does go the right direction. Great answer. That was kind. Of, we had a guy on here a while back, Bailey Combs, and he kind of he kind of said the same thing, you know, roundabout. And and that's don't ever come to Georgia, man, and start filming. If you <laughs> you will be broken hearted and and tore up, but. He could probably come down here and put foot he the way he hunts. I mean, yeah. he could probably get it yeah. done way better than we do. Um, Casey, what are you most thankful for, man? Uh, well, you know, as we're going into the Christmas time, I think just family, great friends, um, all of those things. I think, number one, my, my family has gotten a lot bigger over recent months. I think you heard probably my two-month-old baby screaming in the background a few times. My fiance Valerie, um, uh, being around me and just going home to see my brother and everybody else. I'm just thankful for the family that I have around me. And, and, and I don't get to spend a ton of time around them. We're, we're 
down south, southern Iowa hunting, and he's in North Dakota. My parents are from northern Wisconsin. I think that's, you know, that's part of life. You get out and you branch out and you get bigger, but it's nice to come together on Christmas and everyone gets to see each other and spend some time. Amen. A um, couple last questions real quick. I don't, I don't really ask this, but favorite snack you guys carry in the woods, and do you share anything together? Is there a tradition you guys I'll tell take? you what, honestly, we don't. My favorite snack in the whole world is an oatmeal cream pie. Boy, howdy. You come <laughs> on to Georgia any time, old son. You got it there. That, that is. We don't carry a ton of snacks uh, into the woods with us. We try to try to kind of keep it together. I'll tell you what. We we eat a lot of Mexican food when we're down in Iowa. We, uh, eat, we eat some bad I mean, we eat, uh, we eat some bad stuff. But it's a grind, and it's all part of the fun. And it's part of the experience, right? Going out, hunting, grabbing whatever you get to eat. And just basically trying to get back in the woods as fast as you can. But I had to pick one snack. It'd be it'd be an oatmeal cream pie for sure. I, I'm laughing Greg, because Greg I, Greg will back me on that too. By the way, he, he actually has bought me a few packages just as like, hey, I appreciate it. You know, type deal. <laughs> Do you like the big ones or the regular size ones? Definitely the big ones. The regular <laughs> ones, that's not enough. I'm I'm laughing at this because I'm glad you said Mexican food. What happens to a cameraman? When he's sitting up above his buddy hunting a two inch, two hundred inch deer, and his belly starts turning. Well, he just, you know, we both ate it. So he's in the wrong spot. Does he? Does he? Does he get? Does he get a bad look if he's got to climb down and go and go back to the truck? He should have volunteered to run the camera. That day. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. yeah. I mean, it's not the best. I, I'll tell you what, you know, I think you guys have all seen this too, like box blinds and all that stuff's becoming a huge deal. And we're trying to go above and beyond to try to make our blinds as scent proof as we could possibly make them and all that stuff. And, you know, that has a tendency to work maybe the way you didn't intend it if, <laughs> if you run into that situation oh my goodness i'd hate to sit in a box mom with my daddy after a good set of pinto <laughs> well, beans I, I guarantee you that yeah go, goes from scent proof to scent full that's what it does <laughs> i think that's what greg said you guys had went after he'd taken that 239 inch deer i think he said you guys had met mark and them at at a mexican place and the oh yeah there's there's several in the area yeah we try to frequent them as much as possible yeah what Casey, man, I, I really do appreciate you coming on. I, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. That was fun. And uh, anytime, I'd like to be a part of it. You guys have a great thing going, and I think it's fun to listen to. You guys are doing a great job yourselves. Thank you. Casey, um, one last question for me. What's next for you, and what's your what's your next goal? Well, we're rounding out the season here. Greg still has an Iowa archery tag. We've been uh, – Greg's one of those guys that's kind of like I talked about earlier. If he hasn't punched his tag, you're just waiting on the edge of your seat to see what maybe comes next. So uh, I can't guarantee what that's going to look like or what it's going to be, or even if we're going to be successful, I can guarantee we're going to grind it out till the 10th of January. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we can run into it. That's my number one goal right now. Uh, I also have an Iowa muzzleloader tag. So um, as far as that, that's, that's the short term. Right, you know, just getting through this season, being successful, reflecting on what we did, and and uh, and ending up uh, in a good place. So that's where I'm at. That's awesome. Well, Nick, that brings us down to the final spit of the night. And tonight, we were blessed to be able to learn from a man that lives most of his season behind the lens of a camera. But the depth of his knowledge on habitat harvesting and advancing into the next phase of his outdoor career is astonishing. 
He started out a lot like me and you did in a small town, in a small camp, and had a loyal dog at his side in Boomer. He makes it seem simple on how he lives his life by being thankful, making his own path, and doing it through his own perspective. From filming 200-inch deer to being able to drop giant bunks himself all over the country, his family and friends mean most to him, and that's kind of like you and I. Tonight, during the holiday season, we want to wish everyone that listened to this episode a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we can't wait to join you in the new year. So from everyone here at Talk About It Outdoors, we want to thank Casey Morgan, and we want to remind you to smile as you go, and don't forget, mount the memories.